Hey, this is Ramon Ray. Thank you for listening to the Smart Hustle Report on Small Business Trends. You're in for another exciting, uh, mixy, I would say, dose of information, maybe fun, who knows, to help that you really. That works for me. <laughs> Good, Mitzi. We'll focus on family businesses primarily, and we might touch on other things as well. But again, this is Ramon Ray, and I'm really, really excited to talk to Mitzi Perdue, uh, who will explain who she is and her background and what she's been doing and what she's done. But Mitzi, thanks for joining us on the uh, Small Business Trends uh, podcast, the Smart Hustle Report. Thanks. Well, what a pleasure to be on, and, and your subject is certainly dear to my heart. Awesome. So, Mitzi, why don't you give us all a little uh, nugget of who you are, and I'm sure you've said this over the years a zillion times. So please, one more time, introduce yourself to our audience of who Mitzi Perdue is. Great. Well, I am Mitzi Perdue. I suppose you want more than that, though. Um, That'd be helpful. <laughs> I, I am the author of a book that came out just in the last couple of weeks. It's called How to Make Your Family Business Last, and it's stories, mm-hmm. tips, techniques, templates, resources. for. It's, it's like a turnkey system. If you want to have your business last across the generations, this will give you the best, most current academic research, plus um, information that I have from interviewing oh, in my life hundreds and hundreds of families. And then possibly most of all, I have personal, I've lived an experience in families that develop a culture that supports keeping your family business in the family. And Mm. the Henderson Estate Company began in 1890. And that means 127 years ago, our family business was started. Wow. By the way, that was the, my father co-founded the Sheraton Hotel chain. And that was an outgrowth of the Henderson Estate Company. So although we sold Sheraton, we're still, we're still a family business, and we still have our get-togethers 127 years later. Well, that's, that's, that's half a of legacy, my... Mitzi. That, is, that, that, well, that one half of you is a deep legacy, so kudos. Well, thank you. Uh, and the other half is, is almost as deep a legacy. I married Frank Perdue, the, the chicken guy, and it was a blissfully happy marriage. I just absolutely adored him. But since I'm a writer, I got to write down in real time why he was doing, why he was making his decisions, and I, I kept endless diaries, and so I got to see an awful lot about the effort that he put into keeping his family together across the generations. And a, a little tale out of school, I would describe our honeymoon, but it's not that exciting. Um, <laughs> on our honeymoon, we were we were discussing what was important to him, and he listed the following. I want to be closer to my family, to my community, and to my church. And I loved that that he put family first, which I think my Mm. father would have done too. And and the, the biggest piece of, I don't know, I'd love to call it wisdom that you'll find in my book is that every family has a culture. You know, who's ever listening to us or reading us? Just mm-hmm. think for a moment. A culture is the way we do things. And the way we do things, if, if you just leave that to accident, right. very often you'll find that, you know, just what happens haphazardly doesn't support keeping, keeping the family business in the family. What you really want is a culture which usually takes a lot of thought and effort and planning of teaching family members just from the beginning that, that for example, that family relationships are more important than money, that you can't always get your way, mm. that, that 
relationships are the deepest source of, of either happiness or misery and put the attention into them that they deserve. And frequently that means that you're not going to get your way, that you have to make sacrifices for the good of the group. Absolutely. But if people, yeah, but if people learn that early on, then, then they can avoid all sorts of fights and quarrels where, where people get the feeling, I've got to be right no matter what. Now, is it possible, Mitch, I'm curious now, let's take 10 different families who maybe have successful businesses. Is it possible that those 10 different families can have 10 different cultures and priorities? Or do you find that every successful family business, for example, people are first? Or could there be a family that says money is first? I don't know how that works. Is it always the typical, quote, unquote, good things that we associate? Or as long as it's a culture and you all agree, it can succeed. How do you see that, that culture and, and, and dynamic happening? Okay, I, I, in my life, and I'm 76 and proud of it, I have seen many, many different kinds of cultures. And I think that you can get to the end destination of a high-functioning family you know, through several different roads. But let me share the, the research that I admire most on what it takes to be a high-functioning family. Right. This, this is research that comes out of Emory University in, in Atlanta. And the woman... My contact for this research is Robin Fivish. And mm-hmm. you know, if, if, if our listeners and readers want more information on this, first read my book, but second, they might go to the inter- Internet to look for the Family Narratives Laboratory. And this is what we know that I don't think we knew as well 10 or 20 years ago. So this is current, very much validated research on what it takes to be a high-functioning family. The families who know their family stories are the ones mm-hmm. who are most resilient and most likely to have some of the following characteristics. The kids do well in school. They don't engage in substance abuse. They don't have babies un- until they're grown-ups. Um, they, they don't get in trouble with the law. And why, why does it happen that knowing your family's stories is so protective against, against the pathologies that can happen to families and that helps them be high-functioning? Well, the answer is, and I think I might repeat it twice because I think it's so important. We are the stories. Okay, we are the stories that we tell ourselves. Mm. And here comes the repetition. We are the stories that we tell ourselves. Mm. Um, it, it's like, a, like computer software just directing right. us what to be. And I can give an example. Oh, I have a hundred examples, but an example <laughs> from my own family. Uh, this is a story that has to do with the Rockefellers. And it has to do with the Henderson family that we value being frugal a whole lot. And by the way, the Purdue family has the same approach. But this Mm. is a family story that I'm I'm going to share with you that has to do with kind of the the software program that determines how we act. We know that we're a frugal family because we admire the following story. And it came from... Uh, the, the story is from long ago, but it, it, you know, it's handed down generation after generation. I have, I have a great-great-grandfather who made and lost three fortunes. Uh, wow. And the, the story that, that the family, you know, that we learned at our mother's knees is that first he made and lost three fortunes. Second, he always paid, he landed on his feet, he went right back to work again, uh, and he paid back all his creditors. So we know 
know, it, it's in our DNA almost that we can fall on our face, but we're resilient. We'll, we'll pick mm-hmm. back up and, and keep on. And, you know, when you have messages like that, it, it helps you develop the resilience to just not be defeated by some of the blows that come your way. Right. It seems like what I'm hearing, Mitzi, is that, I mean, to me, this seems like it's it, boiling it down, which is not even fair to all the history that you have and what you're sharing with us, though, is that be a good person, a decent person, first and foremost. You may have seen the studies, and this is a different example, but of the kids who've been taking tests. Kids who were told, this is a difficult test, you probably won't do well, don't do well. Kids that were told, this is a difficult test, but you can do it, they exceed. Same test. Same people are different scenario, but it's just what they were fed. I don't know if that makes yeah, sense. We are, yeah, we are the stories that we tell ourselves. And if your story is, boy, this is difficult and I can't do it, you probably can't. Oh, it brings me to another story uh, that, that I grew up with, and this has to do with the Hendersons and the Sheraton Hotels. And, uh, and yeah, this is a message for business owners, but it's a message for families also. Right. When my father... You know, he, the Sheraton Hotels at the time of his death, there were, there were more than 100 of them. And he got into it in the 1930s when the hotels were going bankrupt right and left. And that meant that he could buy them for very, very little. Well, what was his secret sauce that enabled him to turn them around and have them make enough money so that he could buy more hotels and more hotels until there were 100 of them? Well, the secret sauce... And again, this has been handed down in the family generation after generation. Was I'll, I'll take I'll jump to the bottom line and then I'll illustrate. It. <laughs> he, okay. He felt that people have a compulsion either to live up to or down to your expectations of them. Wow. Well, knowing that, when he'd take over a new hotel, he'd call all the employees into the ballroom of the hotel. Yeah, you know, the first day that he'd taken over. And he'd know ahead of time, because he was a sensitive human being, that every single person in that ballroom uh, of the employees were demoralized. Because if, if the hotel's gone bankrupt, you know, right. they're, they're expecting a house cleaning, that he's going to yep. start all over and fire them all. Instead, his first words would always be, every one of you here is going to keep your job. And you're going to keep your job because I know that you know this hotel better than anybody else on the planet. Mm. And mm. my job is going to be to give you the resources to make this the best hotel uh, in, in the city. And in two years, you'll see it will be the most popular hotel of all. And, and then he'd tell them, I believe in you. I know that you can do it. And you're going wow. to get the support from me that will allow you to shine. So, you know, all of a sudden, everybody's feeling much, much better. Well, he didn't just leave it at the words. What had, the first money that had ever spent on a bankrupt hotel, and you have to invest a lot of money if the hotel's gone bankrupt because you, you know that they've let everything slide and they've cut corners and the place is probably shabby and falling apart. Right. Well, the first money that he spent wasn't on the guest rooms, the places that the, that the guests would see where he spent his money in every case was on the places that the employees would be using, like the employee dining rooms, the mm-hmm. employee mm-hmm. Uh, showers, the employee lockers. And that was to signal to them that he felt that the success of the company at every level depended on the employees and he knew how important mm-hmm. they were and, 
and he had confidence in them and he wanted to demonstrate how important they were by having the first money he spent be wow. on the employees. Isn't that cool? That is, that, Mitzi, that is epic. And I think that it's a shame that, that those stories, and thanks to your book, which we're going to hopefully get into the hands of more people, but it's a shame that more and more, especially Americans, don't realize that there's that negative view of so-called the rich. But I think that people don't understand it takes, a, one, a lot of hard work to develop wealth and spread it to others. But stories like this, I think, are what America's built on. I used to work, Mitzi, for a few years at a company called Infusionsoft based in uh, Arizona, uh, sales and marketing company. And, and similar things that the executive there said is that my first priority is not even to the shareholders. It's not even to our customers, is what Clayton Mass, the CEO, said. He says, my first priority is to you, because if I can, I'm only one guy. But if I can empower, what, 900 of you, you guys will then build our shares and all the things. Is that is that that's kind of the, what we're talking about here is that the employees first is one story. Well, that I'm hearing. You know, that, that approach I saw work in both the Hendersons and the Purdue's because Frank, Frank was so like my father in his view of the importance of, of the employees, or we call right. them associates. Mm-hmm. Oh, he, the amount of effort he put into communicating to the employees or associates, how important they were to him. There's a phrase from, from the great psychiatrist, uh, William James, who said, the deepest principle of human nature is the craving for appreciation. And Frank understood that, and his ways mm-hmm. of showing appreciation were just endless. And with both men, you know, people sometimes ask me the secret of their success. I would say that with both men, one of their, possibly their biggest attribute that, that led to success, well, it wasn't the biggest because it all stayed takes vision and hard, hard work. But Absolutely. with both men, if you started working for them, you probably worked for them for life. He, you know, the turnover in, with Sheraton, right. of all those employees who, who started out you know, demoralized and miserable and suddenly they're given a better vision of themselves, the, the retention was just astonishing. Mm. If you started with him, you probably finished with him. And the same thing happened with Frank, except it was a little bit different. Um, if, if you stayed five years in the company, you were with him for life. And, <laughs> and the reason right. that, that, that you might not uh, make it after the first few years is we had a very, very strong culture of, of very hard work, very demanding, but the people who loved it would stay for life. Yeah, absolutely. Mitzi, I'm curious, Mitzi, what do you say, what did Frank do in particular, uh, or, 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 or your, your father, or in your experience just in your studies, how do you motivate, uh, keep incentivized employees that maybe are being paid very little, employees that may be just starting out, they're not your senior executives, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I'm, I'm sitting right now in back in front of a, a lumber store, as it were. How does a big multi-million, multi-billion dollar lumber store motivate the guy or the gal who's, who's gathering the carts together in the lot. Any, any thoughts on how to do that? Or, you know, those, those who are being paid, well, maybe not so much. How do you motivate and excite them? I, what I saw Frank do and what I saw my late father do was in a hundred different ways he communicated to them how absolutely important and essential they were. Let me give you mm. an example of, of something that Frank used to do. Um, and I, I, I played a large role in this. We, when, when Frank and I came back from our honeymoon, I told him, Frank, I think we ought to entertain every single person who works for the company. And 
you know, since there were 20,000 people, that didn't strike him as real realistic. He said no. <laughs> wow, and, okay. And, and I pretended I didn't understand or process the word no, and I said, I think we should have them 100 at a time. And he said, no, that's way too many. And then I said, uh, and again, pretending that I didn't understand the word no, uh, I said, I think we should start uh, in September, this being August. And he said, no, that's way too soon. And yeah, we just went round and round with me planning that we were going to entertain everybody in the company uh, and with him saying no. But then it changed because as we talked, uh, he started thinking, you know, maybe that's a good idea. And finally he said, I like it. And six weeks later, mm-hmm. we did begin entertaining every single person person that you know get, getting to 20,000 was a right, lot right. But, but but every uh three times a month would have 100 people over and they, wow. they could be the secretaries the truckers the veterinarians the accountants the IT people the basically everybody and so why did he do this because and why did he accept my wild crazy idea well he did accept it because he had always been on the lookout for ways of communicating to the employees or associates in Purdue Speak. He had always been looking for ways of communicating to them their importance and having him over, having them all over at his house and being entertained by him was a way of doing this. And he would, at every one of these dinners, there would be a buffet and he would he would wait on his employees. He'd stand behind the the buffet line, and mm-hmm. serve his employees. I mean, how many heads of Fortune 500 companies would wait on their employees? Not and then many. at the end of okay, then at the end of the evening, he'd he'd stand up in front of a hundred people and he'd tell them what was going on in the company, what the challenges were, right. uh, what was going well, what was going badly, uh, so that they people feel you know, a they part had, of it when you do that. People people feel. Yeah together with you. They want to work with you, fight with you, fight for you when you hear that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. I mean, he, well, his, his concluding statement would always be some variation of, um, and I'm pretending I'm frank at the moment, I know that the company wouldn't be what it is today without each of you. Mm. And so when, when you communicate to people that they're part of a team and that they're important, I think that goes a long way to have employee engagement and having, having people really care. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mitzi, I can't wait to get your book. I know it's uh, MitziPurdue.com slash, and you've given us all a very generous discount slash discount. Uh, one other thing I wanted to talk to you about, Mitzi, and I'm going to, maybe I'll read the book and we'll come back for another four hours of discussion. But can you I'd give love me it. I'd love it. <laughs> maybe I'll just come to where you are and bring a video camera. That's probably what I'll do. But um, can you Which give me? any words of insight to the younger generation. And I'm not one of these people who say millenniums are bad people. Millennials are bad people. I'm not one of those people. I can't, you know, I have young children and I think they're fabulous. But this new generation, we're in 2017 with Snapchat and the internet. And it, I think it does have different morals and different values and et cetera, even then, even though I'm younger than you, even though when I was growing up. So I guess my question to you is, do you have any advice any counsel, any thoughts to the young generation, that 16-year-old that wants to get their first job, that 25-year-old maybe, that's been two or three years working for a company, any advice, thoughts to them as they're working either trying to get to corporate America or as they want to take the entrepreneurial route? What does Mitzi say to them? Okay, I cannot wait to address them because I've got a theory of life, which is that grandparents and grandchildren are just natural allies. We can love each other. I don't have to discipline them. I can just appreciate them. And so 
I love talking with young people. It's, it's possibly among my favorite things to do. Uh, so kind of being, being a loving grandmother, I do have some advice. And it's, um, and it's the following. It has to do with something that they can learn from Frank and that will help them no end in their careers. Frank had to be one of the one of the smarter businessmen around. He was, you know, he was awesomely successful. He he was self-made, and he, you know, he got to the point where he was internationally known. And we sell to uh-huh. we sell poultry and uh, and grain to almost a hundred countries. So, you know, this the advice I'm going to give you is from somebody who's really successful, and it's in theory it's easy to follow. Okay, dear, um, I've adopted all of you. You're my grandchildren now. And so I'm speaking (laughs) to you, you. darling grandchildren. (laughs) Copy Frank Purdue and do the following. It's something that won't come natural, but that will take you a long, long way. I told you Frank was this brilliant. But I watched him. For a good bit of my life, I watched him closely, and I observed the following, which I will now share with you, darling adopted grandchildren. Awesome, Grandma. Frank Purdue, if you were in a conversation with him, he would listen 90% of the time and talk 10% of the time because he felt that listening means that you're learning. And it, it, mm. you know, he was a humble man. He, he didn't walk into, um, say, even a staff meeting with people who were employed by him and just you know, start spouting off. No, he'd ask all of them what they thought. And I think that he formed a lot of his opinions by listening to others first rather than just assuming that he had the answers. So my advice to, uh, to my darling adopted grandchildren, which is every, every person listening to us who's <laughs> under 30, oh, heck, I'll take under 40, is copy one of the smartest men I've ever met who, who listened more than he talked. Yeah, it, it'll take you a long way because you'll... you'll you know, the, the older people in your life, if you're listening to them, uh, it's very flattering to them. They're going to like it. And mm-hmm. then on top of that, you're really likely to learn some stuff. Wow. Mitzi, I, you know what? I, I think you're right. I, I, the, more we, I, the more we can listen, all, but especially younger people, the more we can listen, I think the more we'll learn. Mitzi, it has been a pleasure talking to you today. Is there anything, Mitzi, Mitzi Perdue, uh, that I didn't ask you today? I know you have your new book out, All About Family Business, on your website, MitziPerdue.com. You have a ton of other advice. But anything I didn't ask you that you wanted to mention before we conclude this uh, podcast and discussion? Anything else you wanted to mention to us before we officially, well, formally conclude? Okay, I, I really would love it if you'd come to my website because I'm excited enough about the information that can help people that it's full of freebies right in the front page. And it will, uh, including the discount, the, if you go to mitziperdue.com slash discount, my book, which is normally twenty seven ninety five for you, it's $10. But then on the Thank front you. page, before you get to the discount, uh, there's, there's a ton of free information which I'm eager to share. Mitzi, it's been a pleasure. And again, ladies and gentlemen, Mitzi Purdue, uh, definitely check out her book, her years of experience in building uh, family businesses and working with and observing. And uh, my name is Ramon Ray, the Smart Hustle Report on Small Business Trends. <laughs>